before you this morning is simply John addresses the church. We're in 2 John. This is going to be, if you would, an appendix to 1 John because 2 and 3 John are very short epistles. In fact, if you noticed from this morning, there are not chapter divisions. It's simply verses, verses 1 through 13. So you won't be hearing me referring to chapters because 2 and 3 John are so short, there isn't a requirement for chapter divisions. Nevertheless, though these epistles are short, say amen if you're listening, they are deep. They are short, but they are deep. There is a lot that John the Apostle has to say to his churches or to his church, and in particular, the theme that he continues to reissue and reassert is the theme of truth, and therefore, as a consequence, I've chosen for our next series the title, Standing for the Truth. I want to begin by asking you this question. I wonder how often you've stood for the truth this week. I wonder how often you've stood for the truth this week in conversation with coworkers. I wonder how often you've stood for the truth this week talking to friends or even to family because we know family can be odd. I wonder how often you've stood for the truth when you've spoken to yourself. I'm not psychologizing here. I'm talking about that voice that you tend to entertain that you would never entertain when speaking to somebody else because we have a tendency to speak to someone else the way we believe God would speak to them. But when we speak to ourselves, we're so much more gentle and understanding. Are you hearing what I'm saying? We're so much more compassionate when we speak to ourselves, but when we speak to other people, we're quite adamant about what we believe God would say to them. Church, I'd like to begin this series by telling you that I'm inviting you not only to receive what the truth is saying in general or to other people that you believe need to hear it, but I'm inviting you to hear what the truth is saying to you. It's a different topic altogether. Some people are gladly entertained by orders who speak well and drive their mind toward curiosity and education. But the reality of the matter is, is I'm not here to entertain you. You and I are here to do work, soul work. And you can rest assured that when I stand up and do what I do on a weekly basis, I do it after I've had a conversation with myself. And I'm not saying that with arrogance. I'm saying that with total humility because I'm amazed at the fact that I'm even a Christian. It is only by the grace of God. So Paul says, I am who I am. Not because I've performed three missionary journeys and led an innumerable amount of people to faith in Jesus or planted hundreds of churches or you fill in the blank. I am who I am, not because of those accomplishments, but strictly because my life has been impacted by the grace of God. When you and I sit at the foot of the cross and hear from the words of our Lord, we open our minds and hearts equally. 
It's important for us to understand that because we're going to hear a word today and over the next upcoming weeks about the church. The Apostle Paul, in writing to a church in the New Testament, said, remind each other of these things. Remind each other of these things. Church, we live in a time when we need to be reminded. Amen? Not of how evil evil is, but I'm going to venture out to say here, not evil, but what we need to be reminded of is how good God is. Oh, we're infatuated with how evil evil is. Oh, man, those bad people are bad. Have you seen what those bad people have done lately? Those bad people keep doing bad things, and we act amazed. We act shocked when sinners act like sinners and politicians act like politicians. But I'll tell you what amazes me. When Christians don't act like Christians, we need to be reminded. Not that sinners act like sinners or politicians act like politicians, but that Christians ought to act like Jesus. Because by the grace of God, we are who we are. We need to be reminded, Paul says, and that's why we come together not only on Sundays but on Wednesdays and any other time we can get together because we need to be reminded. Not only do we come together on Sundays and on Wednesdays and any other day that we could get together, but sometimes we do it by ourselves. We open the word and we say, though we may not say it consciously, we might say it subconsciously, God, speak to me. Because I'm not the man I ought to be in you. I'm not the father I ought to be in you. I'm not the husband I ought to be in you. And if you're not saying those things, then you are suffering from the plague of pride and the attitude of arrogance. Every day we wake up with the confidence that we are his children, but with an equal amount of confidence that we need his grace. We need his grace as much on our best day as we do on our worst. And if we don't fall to our knees on a regular basis to say, God, remind me, a sinner, of how great you are, we are suffering from the plague of pride or an attitude of arrogance. We need to be reminded Eventually, if we aren't reminding each other, if we aren't reminding ourselves, if we don't hold fast to the word, essentially what takes place is a faltering, a slipping and a sliding. And before we know it, we're not the church. We're just pretending. We're hiring bands and TED Talk gurus so that we can bring in the numbers under the guise of our being Christian. C.H. Spurgeon, and I can't remember the quote exactly, but it just popped into my head, said, God save the churches that have clowns in the pulpit. The ones who entertain and create a sort of fancy and interest over the intrigue of what's going to be said, but there's no conviction there. 
There's no soul work happening there. He said in another place, I see a lot of preachers that are like the knife throwers in the circus when they throw the knives. They get close, but they never actually hit anybody. We're not going through second and third John because we're not aiming to hit anybody. We're going through second and third John because we need to be open and vulnerable before God, trusting in his grace to do what is good and what is right. We're not pretending to be the church. There are those who pretend to be the church. We're also not those who exploit the church. You know, they're not really interested in growing people for Jesus Christ. They're interested in lining their pockets. They're interested in their Instagram likes. They're interested in their popularity. If they weren't interested first and foremost in their popularity, they'd be preaching a different word. They'd be preaching this word, regardless of what we might see happening around us. What is most important, church, say amen if you're listening. What is most important is that we remind each other. The most significant thing in the eyes of God is not what's happening around us. It's what's happening in us. Today, we're going to look at three simple points. Three simple points from three short verses. And God willing, when we're done and we walk out of here, we're committed and convicted about doing what's right for God's glory and for the good of others. Let me begin with the first of our three points, which is this, the church's leadership the church's leadership. This is the first point that we're going to address, the church's leadership, which immediately presents itself in the first few verses, just to wet our palate again and excite our minds. Look at the word of God, if you would, please, and read with your eyes as I read aloud. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us, and will be with us for how long? Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. This is the introduction to Second John. He begins in particular with this line I'd like you to focus on. The elder to the elect lady and her children. The elder to the elect lady and her children. One more time. The elder to the elect lady and her children. Now, the question arises, why did the apostle John, an apostle, a, a group of men who were specifically chosen by Jesus and possessed a certain criteria to meet the necessary requirements to be called an apostle in the first place? I know there's some clowns running around talking about their apostles. They're not. No one can meet the biblical qualifications to be called an apostle today. They did, they don't. But John, an apostle of Jesus Christ, introduces himself here in 2 John, not as the apostle John, 
but as the, the elder to the elect lady. He doesn't introduce himself that way. Why does he refer to himself instead as the elder? Well, there are a couple of possible reasons for this. The first is historical. There could be a historical reason for this. At this point in history, we're talking about 95 AD, John is an old man. The other apostles have died. They've gone to glory. John has gotten to that stage in life when he has stopped getting things and he has started losing things. The men that he served Christ with and grew the church with have either been martyred or, or have died. So historically speaking, everyone knows that John is the last apostle, and since that point is established, John might be setting a different tone in this letter. He's not aiming at reestablishing his apostleship. As far as John is concerned, his apostleship is already established. That's unnecessary. Instead, he's approaching this letter. Listen to me, church. John is approaching this letter as a man of experience as a man of wisdom, as a man of history. Paul does the same thing, the exact same thing, when he writes a letter to Philemon. He writes a letter to Philemon. He introduces himself as Paul, the apostle of Christ, but in the course of the letter, he's speaking to Philemon about Onesimus. This is a different situation, which we won't delve into, but he's speaking to Philemon about Onesimus, and he wants Philemon to receive Onesimus back and not make him pay for the wrong that he did. And so Paul says to Philemon, not, you will do what I say because I'm the apostle of Christ, but he says instead, hear what I'm saying because I'm Paul the old man. Literally, he says, the aged. There's something to be said in the Bible, and there used to be a respect in our culture for older people. In the scripture, God is adamant, I am the Lord, he says in Leviticus 19.32, I am the Lord, you will stand before the presence of a man with gray hair. The other day, I was speaking to somebody on the street, and he kept calling me my man. I said, brother, I'm not your man. You'll call me by my name, and you'll pay me respect. I don't know who you are. There used to be respect built into young people as they came up. Now, respect is something that should be taught to our children so that it continues to repeat itself in society, but I want you to get something. I'm not saying that if you're respectful, you're saved. But what I am saying is if you're saved and you're not respectful, you're sinful. God expects respect. God expects young people to respect older people. Now, I'm going to turn this around and say something else. God expects older people to pour into young people. Sometimes older people like the fact that, hey, respect your elders, honor your father and mother, to which I often remind them, Titus chapter 2 says, older women pour into younger women. Older men invest in younger men. It doesn't work one way. First and foremost, I think John is saying, I'm writing to you as the elder because there's a historical reason there. 
There's respect there. The second reason I think that he does this is an ecclesiological reason. It's an ecclesiological reason. Now, let me just take a quick diversion here because some of you, you know, you heard that word. You said, is this English? The word for church in the Greek New Testament is ekklesia. Ekklesia. It's a compound word that means called out ones. So in the New Testament, when you see the word church, it is the word ecclesia. So in theology, the study of the church, how it functions, why it functions that way, and who is responsible for the way that it functions is called ecclesiology, the study of the church, ecclesiology. Anybody want to venture out and try to say that? See, it's English. Okay, all right, all right. When we talk about ecclesiology, we're talking about the theology of the church, the practice of the church, in particular those who are called out. That's what the church means. So when I say there's an ecclesiological reason here, I'm saying that I think Paul, sorry, not Paul, John is, is saying the elder to the elect lady because he's referring to himself as the elder for, for ecclesiological reasons. The word elder in the Greek is ho presbuteros. It's the word we get presbytery from. A presbytery is a group of elders. When the Bible teaches us about the church's setup and politics, its government, if you will, it breaks down the church into two separate categories. The first group is used by these, uh, described by these words, pastors, shepherds, overseers, bishops, elders. Those are not different classes within the church. Those are churches that describe either the respect that comes with the office or the duty that is implied by the office. It's either a noun or a verb. Make sense? You are an overseer or you are shepherding. Same office, though. The second group that is described when it comes to the church's government are the deacons. Now, we have a variety of denominations around us. Some of you may be joining us today. We are a Southern Baptist church. We participate in two offices, that of the pastor, or any of these other synonyms, and deacons. Maybe you come from a different church, Methodist or Lutheran, or maybe you come from a Roman Catholic background where there are bishops and archbishops, etc. We don't do that here because we don't see that definition breaking down in the New Testament. What we see breaking down in the New Testament is not offices and offices and offices, but one office described with different words and then another office described as deacons. Now, I know that's a lot, but follow me here. John isn't just saying that he's any elder. This is important for us to note. He is a unique elder among many other elders because he is an elder who is also an apostle. So in this case, John is addressing the church as a church leader, like a pastor would. And John expects the church to listen to God-given advice and God-given instruction. Now, I'm an elder. 
This is what we, we refer to each other as, as church and pastor. But really, in the New Testament, the word pastor is only used twice. So we have taken to use the least common word used to describe my office. I'm not saying we're doing something wrong. I'm just saying that's a fact. I'm an elder. And while my position comes with authority and responsibility, I don't carry the authority that John did because I'm not an apostle. Nevertheless, we can't miss this point. If John really felt like his point in the letter had to be received, like it was that important, he, he, he wouldn't have jeopardized missing the connection with the church by using the word elder unless he had faith in the church to believe that the title of elder was that important. In other words, if he was worried about the church receiving or not receiving his message because he used apostle instead of elder, he would have used apostle. But he doesn't. Which tells us, church, that the New Testament is adamant about the equality and importance of all Christians, but it is equally adamant about the fact that not all Christians are in a position of authority. And that in the church... Authority should be respected and acknowledged, not as a man-made contrivance, but as a God-given design. Now look at how John addresses the church. He says, the elder to the elect lady. Now we've already addressed the fact that the church in the Greek New Testament is called the ecclesia, those who are called out, Right? Called out from what? Or called out by whom? Christians are those who have been called out by God and have been called out from the world and from sin. The church here is called the elect. He refers to the church as the elect lady. There's some verses that are going to come up here on the screen, and this is something that I want you to, to notice, that throughout the Bible, God's people are referred to as his chosen or elect people. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, God's people are, called, are, are, God, uh, God's people are chosen to be a people. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it says that God's people were chosen before the foundation of the world. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says that God's people are a chosen race. John refers here to the church as the elect lady and her children. Because those who are in the church, those who are regenerate, those who have been born again and are Christians, those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Redeemer and their King have been chosen and elected by God. There is no other explanation without twisting the plain meaning of these texts. From the Old to the New Testament, God's people are called His chosen people. To the extent that John, in 2 John chapter 1, just casually says, I'm writing to God's elect people. If you are in Christ today, you are in Christ because you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. 
And the Bible says that anyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ, anyone, will be saved. Amen? If you're saved, you're elect. That's how it works. We don't run around and say, who's elect? That's not our business. That's God's business. What God said is go into all the world and preach the gospel. From top to bottom, from left to right, acknowledging them to observe all that I've commanded you and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Nothing in that command that Jesus gave to us says anything about election. That's God's business. But what we do learn from the scripture is that once we're in the church, we realize that our being in the church, our being converted, has been part of God's plan from eternity past. How do I wrap my mind around that, Joe? I don't think you do. I think you simply acknowledge the fact, as we often say, God is the king, and the king is sovereign. Psalm 97 verse 1 says, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. We're not putting out ballots to find out who, who's in favor of this, that, or the other thing. We're sitting at the foot of the cross, listening to the words of our Lord, and what is being said to us is this. If you're in the church, you have been chosen. Or to pull from Jesus himself in John chapter 15, verse 16. John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus says it this way. You have not chosen me. I have chosen you. If there's any doubt, if you're dubious about this thing, if you have any qualms about the idea of this theology, may they be completely dispelled by John 15, 16, in which our Lord says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Well, we see this to be, first and foremost, the church's leadership. But our second point is the church's foundation. And in the church's foundation, we read in verses 1 and 2 some important words. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the church, excuse me, truth, and not only I, but all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us. And will be with us forever. Friends, there are thousands of religions in the world. While everyone wants to get their version or understanding of forgiveness or righteousness or heaven, they all have different foundations and different ways to get there. Some have a foundation built on feelings. Some religions have a foundation built on sayings or wisdom passed down. Some have a foundation that's built on reincarnation. There are a variety of ways to get to righteousness and peace and joy in heaven in all the religions of the world. Some even have the foundation of their religion built on sin and perversion. If you don't believe me, just watch a documentary on Netflix. There's cults everywhere. Today, it isn't uncommon to hear people say things like, I follow my own truth. 
Or truth isn't the same for one person as it is for another. Or even more extreme yet, maybe something along these lines, there is no truth. But that is them. And this is us. That is them. This is us. So regardless of what they say, it should not have any effect on us. For us, the church's foundation is truth. And John says that it abides in us and will be with us, how long? Forever. The truth about God, the truth about his son, Jesus Christ, his life, death, resurrection, burial and resurrection and ascension. The truth about the gospel and so much more. Our faith isn't a faith that's based upon some guru's idea or some book's teaching that has no historical or archaeological evidence like the Book of Mormon. Our faith is based upon the Word of God that has proven to be tried and true. Some verses for you to consider. Psalm 18, verse 30. Psalm 18, verse 30. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. That's Psalm 18, verse 30. How about this one? Revelation 21.5. If, if there's ever any doubt, when you say Revelation, you're like, okay, then it's real. Revelation 21.5. These words are trustworthy and true. These words are trustworthy and true. Listen, church, John is saying that Christians are those who know, K-N-O-W, Christians are those who know the truth. They're not searching for it. They're not looking for it. They're not feeling for it. They know it. So here are a few things to consider. I'm going to come up here on the screen for you. Number one, if you want to know the truth, you must know the Bible. If you want to know the truth, you must know the Bible. It's not found in a thousand different areas, and because we're sinners, truth is definitely not found in us. Truth is found in the Word of God, the Bible. That's too simple. It's got to be more complicated. No, listen, listen. Listen, Psalm 18.30, our God, his ways are perfect, and his word always proves true. Either you believe it or you don't. If you say you believe it and you're looking for truth elsewhere, you don't believe it. Truth is found in the word of God. In his perfect plan and providence, God inspired the authors by the Holy Spirit, and then protected the product which we call the Bible throughout history so that we can read it and know that we're reading God's Word to us. Second, if you want to know the truth, or if we want to know the truth, I should say, we must know other Christians in the local church. If we want to know the truth, then we must know other Christians In the church, as amazing as it might sound, no one can put your faith in Jesus Christ for you. You have to do that on your own. 
That's an individual thing. But at the same time, Christianity is not a solo event. It is a community fellowship. I know a lot of Christians who are not very good Christians because their attendance at church is occasional or worse. God has not made Christians to live alone with this thing where they say, well, I'm spiritual, but I don't go to church. I don't know. That's not in here. That's in somebody else's book, but the truth, the book of truth, does not say that's real. No such thing. If you're a Christian, you go to church. That's what Christians do. And I say go to church. What I'm saying is, is you gather with God's people to worship God. That's what church is. We gather with God's people to worship God. That every Sunday morning, people go, oh, what are you doing on Sunday morning? And I say, I'm worshiping God with God's people. Because people who are sort of like riding the fence about Christianity or aren't Christians but say they're Christians because they're not Muslims, they say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't think you need to go to church to be a Christian. Come on, man. What, what are we, having a debate in K5 here? This, this, this more intense than that. It's more intense than that. If you won't go to church to worship God with God's people, I guarantee there is no cross on your back that you're carrying. No way. Jesus said, follow me, take up your cross daily. So the idea that people... The idea that people would say, I'm carrying the cross that Jesus has given to me to carry, but I don't go to church, is laughable. Doesn't happen. If you're not in church, if you're not worshiping God with God's people, you're not carrying a cross. And you say, you're mean. No, I'm just being honest. Now, everybody has issues. Everybody has circumstances. That's not what I'm talking about. I know there are health issues, there are responsibilities that sometimes keep us locked at home, helping someone, we're traveling, everybody needs a vacation every now and then, even the pastor. (laughs) (laughs) These things are not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is this infection of a mentality that the world gave to us that says you don't have to get together to be a healthy Christian. You can Zoom Jesus. You can Facebook Live Jesus. Facebook is a terrible place to go to church. You can't even see my spit when I'm preaching on Facebook. (laughs) So much more real here. Now, it's wonderful that we have that privilege. It's wonderful that hopefully those family members of ours who are not with us today are online. And God willing, they're going to be healthy and strong, and they're going to be with us in the next week or upcoming weeks. We pray that God will do that. And we're grateful that God has given to us this secondary way to be together. But never does God intend a secondary blessing to take the place of his primary purpose. That's good. Put that down somewhere. We have to keep the priorities the priority. If we want to know the truth, we got to get together. 
Thirdly, and finally, to know the truth is to remain with the truth. To know the truth is to remain with the truth. Look at what John says again. He says in verse 2, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us again. How long? Forever. Forever. Truth is not an optional thing. It's not a fad. It's not a trend. It doesn't go up with popularity and down with popularity. In fact, when Paul spoke to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, he said, Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. In other words, when the word is popular, preach the word. And when the word is unpopular, preach the word. Truth remains. One author writes this, the truth of God the Father revealed in his son, Jesus, is the truth that has an abiding reality. In other words, friends, people who are genuinely impacted by the truth don't see if they can fit the truth into their lives. Instead, truth revolutionizes their life. their thinking, their behavior, and most importantly, their belief statements are radically changed. Jesus isn't some teacher. He's a beautiful Savior. He isn't another bobblehead on the, on the shelf. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Worship isn't an inconvenience. It's an opportunity for us to come together to worship God in song and in study. We don't say, oh, I got to go to church. No, I get to go to worship with God's people to worship God today. Truth is important, and you don't get to do it alone or by yourself. You can't put it on and off like an outfit. Truth abides in us, and we stay with it forever because the truth does not change. We can change definitions. We can change words. Merriam-Webster Miriam, is redefining words now because popularity outweighs truth in our communities. Popularity is not relevant in this community. In the community of Christ, truth always outweighs popularity. Finally, Let's look at the church's blessing. Reading again from the top to verse 3, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Here's the blessing. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Lastly, we see the church's blessing. This is a beautiful verse that reminds us of all the world would ever want, but what the church already has. First, we have grace. First, we have grace. God is gracious toward us, church. What this means is that all of his riches are bestowed upon us even though we can't earn them, even though we cannot merit them, even though we do not deserve them. 
God's posture is toward us, not because we have convinced him that we should receive these blessings, but because he's gracious. God is gracious. We, the lesser party, receive from God, who is the greater party, because he's gracious. We can never earn his favor. We can never deserve his affection. We have this because he is gracious. Secondly, we have mercy. Grace, mercy, and peace. Secondly, we have mercy. And what is mercy? Well, mercy, just quite simply, is a divine word for pity. I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but when the kids were much younger... We were driving south on 87, actually. I was taking them to school in the morning, and both girls were in the back of the truck, and I hear Sarah say, oh, that is such a cute dog. And I I look out the window at the sidewalk, and this mangy three-legged dog that looked like it had been through, man, just, wow, a lot. He was the ugliest dog I think I've ever seen. Sarah was having pity on that dog. Right? No. (laughs) No, it was was horrible. Mercy is the divine word for pity. When God looks down at the children of men from heaven, he looks at us and he's moved to mercy because our situation, let's be frank, let's be candid, our situation is is a mess. And when God looks down, he doesn't cross his arms and says, serves you right. No, the scripture says that he's merciful. That he's merciful. He looks down and he has pity toward us. Third, we have peace. Grace, mercy, and finally peace. Peace is not only an absence of storms, church. It's steadiness, calmness, and confidence in the storms. We would love lives that are free of troubles, but Jesus said in John 16, in this world you will have trouble. So if the Lord said it and the examples provided for us in the book of truth, the word of God, show us that even the saints before us went through church, Lord, as saints, uh, church as saints, we're going to go through trouble. We're going to have trouble in this life. We're going to have trouble in our marriages. We're going to have trouble with our kids. We're going to have trouble fighting sin. We're going to have trouble within our families. We're going to have trouble in our churches sometimes, etc., etc. This is why we have to stay together and stay close to the truth so that being close to the truth we will have peace. I love how Paul says it. Be anxious about nothing, but in all things with prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which passes understanding, will keep your hearts and minds safe in Christ Jesus. That's a promise that says, no matter what's going on in the world, the peace of God can protect you. I don't know about you, but that's attractive to me. John says without hesitation that these things will be with us. He doesn't say with everyone. He doesn't say with the world. 
He says, with whom? Us. This is the blessing of the privilege of knowing Jesus Christ. It isn't a hope or a charm or some, con- some kind of incantation. We're not going to a store, buying a candle, lighting it, and having grace, mercy, and peace. It doesn't work that way. We have grace, mercy, and peace because we are God's people. This, these divine blessings aren't, aren't afford, afforded to anyone else. They're simply ours. And why are they simply ours? Because we are in Christ Jesus. We are the church. If you're a Christian, then grace, mercy, and peace is yours in Christ Jesus. It's not found elsewhere, although there are many counterfeits. It's not in alcohol, though many people try to find it there at the bottom of a bottle. It's not found in drugs or in scripts. It's not found in immorality. It's found in God and his son, Jesus Christ. Friends, do you have grace, mercy, and peace today? If you were to survey your own heart, if you were to examine your own mind, would you find yourself to be a person in the grace, mercy, and peace of God? Or would you find yourself to be someone who is restless, unsettled, unconvinced? I'm here to tell you today that John says, we know this to be true. Because he's in Christ, and everyone in Christ has this testimony. And I'm hoping today from young to old and male to female, you leave here today convinced of this truth. Under these headings of the church's leadership, foundation, and blessing, that grace, mercy, and peace is afforded to you in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ. To close, let me say this. The church universal around the world, ours and every other church that exists, is near and dear to the heart of God because the church is the body of his son, Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is the head. We answer to him and we follow his leadership. We do it through the word of God, which is the truth. We don't negotiate, we don't dilute, we don't twist. We obey to the best of our understanding and the best of our ability what the word of God has in store for us. But we as a church will never be stronger than we as individual Christians. The membership and attendance of this church is valued. But your discipleship is foremost in our mind. We want you to be here. We want your friends to be here. We want your family to be here. We want strangers to be here every single week. But we don't want those things to such an extent that we're willing to compromise the gospel.